episode 125, Kevin Foster, CEO of Business Ethics Advisors, LLC. And I was thinking in my own mind that certainly I had nothing to do with that project where I was going to be implementing any type of criminal activity. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes, because we all make mistakes. But what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is a place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For links, show notes, and more for this episode, you can go to markraven.com slash mistake125. Thanks for listening. Now, on with the show. And our guest today is Kevin Foster. He is an ethical leadership expert, and the path that he took to get to the work he does today, I think, is um, going to be a fascinating story and conversation today. So Kevin is a former financial executive um, with a number of organizations, um, He was a 30-year veteran in real estate. He was a former CPA with the firm that is now KPMG. But Kevin's journey took him uh, from corporate real estate executive to convicted felon, um, spending 37 months in prison with 28 days in solitary confinement. So Kevin now is CEO of a company, Business Ethics Advisors. My mistake, I stumbled over that. Business Ethics Advisors where he uses um, his ethics tools, and there's an acronym there we might learn about today, to provide ethics awareness and solutions so others can be prepared to identify personal characteristics and circumstances that lead to unethical behavior uh, and and sometimes worse. So Kevin, thank you so much for being a guest here today. How are you? Well, Mark, thank you very much for having me on. I'm doing great today and so good to see you and be on your show. So I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, well, thank you for being willing to share your story. And um, I, I haven't really heard the details of the story. I may have spoiled a little bit of the story with the introduction, but, but Kevin, thinking back to your career, you know, what is your favorite mistake? What happened? Okay, so I was VP of finance for a real estate development company, and I helped start the company and was very actively involved in all aspects of its founding and management. But I was based in... Atlanta, and the company was really based in North Carolina. So I was removed from um, all the other executives and the owners of the company. We had a project up in the mountains in North Carolina that was 2,000 acres. It was a big project. And the ownership solicited a lot of investors for that particular um, project. And those investors were made um, promises as part of their inv- um, part of their investment. Well, this was in 2003 through 2007. We know what happens towards, as we got closer to 2007, the real estate market just started totally crashing. And that real estate project, like uh, many others, um, um, failed. And those investors um, ultimately complained to the North Carolina Attorney General's Office and to the U.S. Attorney's Office in Charlotte. But leading up to that, we knew there were some problems with that project. And I also was aware that those owners were doing some pretty shady things that surrounded that project. 
And when it looked like the project was going to fall apart, the owner of that company, I'll just use his first name, Tony, kept on saying, you know, Kevin, I'm not the only one that's going to go to prison here. I'm not the only one that's going to go to prison. And that ended up being my favorite mistake because I ignored that huge warning that he gave me. And in my own mind, I was thinking that it was going to be his partners that were up there in North Carolina. There was um, an attorney that was actually involved, two attorneys that were actually involved in that project. And I was thinking in my own mind that certainly I had nothing to do with that project where I was going to be implementing any type of criminal activity because in my own mind, I was not guilty of any criminal activity. I had never met or talked to any of those investors and the banks that were involved. I didn't have anything to do with any of those banks. So in my own mind, I never thought that I was going to be implicated in there. So I should have listened to those warning signs. And when the project, when I was actually involved in trying to get that project refinanced, and ultimately with the existing loan, those guys had um, defaulted on that existing loan. And I actually had resigned my job as chief financial or um, VP, um, executive VP of finance, knowing they were not going to be able to get out of that project with any new financing. And all this is really before the project had ultimately failed. And I had quit. And unfortunately, I let the owner, Tony, talk me into coming back on, on with the company to try to bail them out of that project. And once I got, ba- um, got back in on that project, I was deeper and deeper in that project. And everything sort of turned on that um, at that point in time. So my favorite mistake was actually warning those huge red flags that were flashing in front of me, including Tony telling me, I'm not the only one who's going to prison. And, and actually even rejoining the company after I had quit. Because if, if I had stayed quit, I would never have been implicated in any type of um, criminal accusation. Did his, uh, so wow. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, so there, there's a, thank you, you know, for, for, for sharing that. And, you know, there's a lot of questions that come to mind. Um, like, like for one, I mean, this, this guy, Tony saying, I'm not the only one who's going to go to prison. Like, did that seem like some sort of just failed business gallows humor where you, you, you didn't really, like, is there a fine line between a business failing and then, you know, there were accusations and convictions of fraud, which implies like some intent on some level, right? Well, by this time, um, as the project was failing, there were some um, guys that were beginning to accuse the ownership of fraud. And then um, Tony had actually confided in me about this, about the same time that he had placed two, um, it placed the same property as collateral on two separate loans, which is certainly fraud. So I was kind of aware of it. Plus, we went out and got a, a, an attorney's opinion letter from a large firm that how we were closing the investor loans was all perfectly legal. And in my own mind, I I had actually questioned whether they were um, closing those things in a perfectly legal manner. 
And there, that question became more and more forward as some other people started looking at the project. And so there really was some concern about the time that I quit the project, whether there was fraud involved, because certainly the previous, um, the previous lender who um, these guys were defaulted on started accusing them of fraud at that particular time. And that's really when I quit. So yes, there were some accusations of fraud on their part related to that project um, leading up to and including the time that I had actually quit six months previously to the whole project falling apart. So what is the lesson for other executives? Um, if there are unethical things happening in a company that may then become illegal, even if you're not actively involved in fraudulent acts, or if you're not involved in any sort of conspiracy, like how, how does um, an executive avoid getting caught up in kind of the wider net of the, the FBI or the DOJ or prosecution? Is the, is the answer simply just to quit and, and get out of the situation? Or what else should executives do? Well, they, they should, but let me kind of tell you why. So it ended, let me just kind of tell you where the story went, and then I'll, let me backfeed the answer to that question. So when the, when the project did fail and the, and the U.S. Attorney's Office and the Attorney General's Office for North Carolina got involved, then there was an FBI investigation, a criminal investigation. And of course, the FBI was asking me questions and I immediately had hired a criminal defense attorney and I paid him about $250,000 in legal fees to try to stave off any type of indictment on, on my part. And what the U.S. attorney started talking about was conspiracy. And this was a very, very hard lesson to me. Even though I was not directly involved in that project whatsoever, under our American criminal laws uh, with conspiracy, anything, anything that another person does to advance that conspiracy in some way, whether it's a meeting that you attend, a telephone call, a conversation, a document that you prepare, almost anything can get you tied up in that conspiracy. And you are just as guilty as anyone who um, perpetuated that conspiracy for the total amount of the conspiracy. In this case, it was $100 million in alleged fraud, which is a large amount. So my attorney eventually came to me and said, said, Kevin, look, at these guys want to go after you and they want to go after you hard for conspiracy. And I'm going to tell you, they're going to go after you for 20 to 30 years in prison. And, um, and I already told them that I didn't want to plead guilty. The U.S. Attorney's Office was telling me or telling my attorney they thought that, you know, with one or two counts, they would be able to negotiate that plea down to that amount, which is five years in prison. So the, the whole fact of the matter is, Kevin, I'll take this thing to prison to uh, trial if you want me to take it to trial. But I can, I'm going to tell you, my legal fees are going to be an additional $1 million. I want $350,000 right now today. And you're going to have to prove to me we're going to come up with other $650,000. Well, this was money I did not have. I already given them $250,000. But uh, sophisticated white-collar crime, which is what this was, the FBI had millions of dollars, uh, millions of pages of documents. Um, involves a lot of research, a lot of time at trial, a lot of expert testimony. 
So there's a lot of time involved. Plus, he was trying to save me from spending the rest of my life in prison. And quite frankly, I have about one of the best white collar attorneys available in North Carolina. He's a very, very well known white collar attorney. So his fee, I mean, that was pretty much the going rate, rate, believe it or not. So it was very expensive. So what could um, other executives that were in my position know what the um, know what the conspiracy laws are? Know that if you have done anything whatsoever to um, to hide ongoing criminal activity, um, you know, chances are they can bring you in, and you could be part of um, of that criminal trial. Um, to give you a real life example. I am shocked, absolutely shocked. There were no other employees um, at Theranos that were um, there were facing trial besides Sonny and um, Elizabeth, um, Elizabeth. I am absolutely shocked that no other employees are facing um, trial in that case. Because certainly if you read or you saw that HBO special, Bad Blood, there was a lot of people there that knew those machines did not work and that there was a lot of fraud involved in that company. And so are, are there not conspiracies? On and on and on, where other employees absolutely know that there are, their bosses are involved in um, you know, illegal activities and they do nothing to stop it. And they play along to go along. I was making a large amount of money. I was making a lot of money. And a lot of guys, they'll hang out in order to be able to keep that money, you know, coming in. That's just human nature. Sure. So, do you know, I mean, I know the Theranos story. I've read the book, Bad Blood, and, and some of the, you know, the audio or the documentary um, tellings of that story. And now that it's in trial, I haven't followed it that closely. But are you, are you saying there, for all of the charges they're facing, there, there are not conspiracy charges? Is that at the discretion of? prosecutors or the DOJ? Yes, there's certainly at the discretion of the DOJ. All of this was the discretion of DOJ. And I was actually shocked they were coming after, um, after me because of my lack of immediate involvement to the case. But this was a national case, and they wanted heads to roll. And the guy who was the internal gen- uh, attorney general at that time for North Carolina, he is now governor of that state. Roy Cooper. So, you know, he had a political career that he needed to consider, not that he got involved in the criminal aspect, but I had to settle civil charges with him as well. So there was a lot of pressure on everybody in that case in order to get heads. And that's what happened here. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've watched a handful of legal dramas and, you know, uh, I mean, it seems like there, there, there are some portrayals where like somebody like yourself would get leaned on to testify, to bring down the, the quote unquote ringleader um, and, 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 and give you a, a more favorable plea deal. Was there any of that? Or they were just like, no, they had enough evidence. They didn't have to get cooperation from somebody like yourself. Well, that's a, that's an interesting part. They were, um, there was one attorney who um, did not plead guilty and I think there was a couple other defendants they were looking at going after, and they wanted to preserve my testimony. So um, they secured my um, my plea deal, but they kind of held out um, 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 
that if you cooperate with us, we can go back and we can reduce your sentence. And, um, and I agreed to cooperate and they actually did go back. I never had to cooperate, but they did go back and they did reduce my sentence from five years to four years. So that did, that did happen. Not that it really saved me a lot of time in prison because, you know, um, certainly I wish I had never gone to, never gone to prison. And the attorney that they hung out, he almost went to, um, almost went to trial he actually got, he was actively involved in closing all these loans that were at question. He was an attorney. Talk about a person who should have known better. He ended up taking a plea deal to 36 months in prison, not the 60 months that I got. So in retrospect, there was a chance that I probably could have negotiated a better deal than what I've gotten. But when you're looking at 20 or 30 years in prison, you know, you really don't want to um, press it too far. Case they tell you to go jump in the lake, you know. So there's, I mean, I want to come back and talk about the work that you do today um, through through your company, Business Ethics Advisors. Um, but but first, I, th- I think there's a curiosity, and maybe you know the the, the listeners are wondering too. I mean, what what is it like for uh, somebody from you know a finance job, white collar job, to go to prison? Was it? I mean, you know, you you, I mean, like the show. Um, there's probably, I don't know, I'm going to bring up the show Arrested Development, where there were, you know, there was real estate fraud and the father of the family went to prison. But like people joke about, quote unquote, country club prison. Was it anything like that? Or I mean, what, what's the environment like? OK, well, um, first of all, I started in a low security prison, which had, you know, 20, 30 feet, you know, 30 foot high electri- um, electrified fences all around. And there were some really bad dudes that were in there. I wasn't there for very long. I ended up, um, there were some concerns about my safety and I got thrown into solitary confinement for, um, for 28 days. And from solitary confinement, I was switched to a minimum security prison, which is also known as the camp, FPC, federal prison camp, which is what you're referring to as a country club prison. And the only reason why that's probably a little bit easier is there are no fences around it. Um, and you have more, you have more freedom, but you know, you're in prison. Trust me, those guards there, they're called COs. You know, they treat you as if you are a hardened, you know, criminal. And certainly the only difference between the inmates were that the inmates that were at the prison camps had never been convicted of violent crimes. So some of them had served some very long sentences along the way. They weren't violent criminals. But if you walked off of those premises without any fences, that's still um, prison break. And I saw some guys do that. And those guys are always caught. And they always get longer um, sentences, um, time added on to those sentences. But there's some guys that, you know, they just say, this is even too much for me. And they just, they called them walk-offs. Walk-offs. I mean, they would just literally walk away walk through the woods and eventually they were, they were caught. They caught one guy down in Mexico when he was blowing his mouth about how he had escaped from prison. And some of the guys he was sitting around in Mexico apparently picked up the phone somewhere and they called the, called the feds and, you know, they had somebody pick him up down in Mexico and brought him back. So um, it is a little bit easier if you're in a prison camp, but you know, you're in prison. Um, you know, I had an opportunity there to meet some very interesting 
um, you know, folks in prison. Um, I met um, some pretty, you know, pretty famous guys. I mean, one of my best friends in prison was Jesse Jackson Jr., you know, the son of the Reverend Jesse Jackson, who was a 17-year congressman. His case was pretty well known. Um, you know, John um, Regas, who was with Adelphia, was a, was very well known. Him and Tim. John just recently died. One of the nicest men I ever met. But that was a big multi-million dollar um, fraud that was right after Enron. So I met those guys. I knew those guys. I met a lot of other politicians, other business folks. But also there was a lot of drug dealers that were down there. Um, you know, I was really good friends with a lot of Hell's Angels. I did, you know, so you had some, you had a whole, you know, you had the whole thing from politicians and um, doctors to um, drug dealers and, um, you know, ran the whole gamut uh, of people that you would meet. And there was a lot of interesting stories. And when I got out, people would ask these same type of questions. Kevin, tell me your stories. And we'd be at dinner in a restaurant. My wife would be kicking me underneath the table because she thought I was talking too much, you know, about, you know, about prison life and everything. But people have a natural, um, they really do want to know whether the, the stories they've heard are true or not. And some of them are true. Some of them are exaggerated. And um, it was a very interesting time in my life. And I got to say that, um, you know, looking back on that time, time for it, I truly believe that everything that happens to somebody, including myself, everything that happens, um, that happened, had to happen, everything that will must happen, and it all happens for a reason and it serves us. I think I'm a totally different person now than what I was then. I think I grew and matured through that whole prison experience. And I had an opportunity to help um, a lot of my fellow inmates, you know, through their prison journey. And um, I think there was a lot of positive things that came out of that whole journey. And I'm a real big believer in the hero's journey. If you're familiar, if anyone's familiar with the hero's journey, the final phase of that hero's journey is just like in the caveman that used to go off on the hunt and come back and sit around the tribe around the campfire and tell their, um, their hunting stories to the tribe. So you'd be able to relay those stories so the whole tribe can benefit from those stories. And that's exactly what happened to me. I know that you want to ask me about what I'm doing now. And when I got out of prison, yes, I had a full experience that I thought that other people should benefit from. And that's what started my speaking you know, career. And originally I was going to write a book and that seemed like it was too, um, too hard for me <laughs> to do for too little money. And I thought speaking was um, was more interesting and probably more profitable on my part, quite frankly. And so I thought that other white collar professionals should know that small and unth unethical slips can have devastating consequences, including criminal liability, and that people can learn from my story. And that's what taught, um, started me on my current um, business that I'm on you know, speaking and coaching, um, typically other white collar professionals about um, how close most people are to going to prison. 
There's a book out that I would suggest anybody to read called Three Felonies a Day where Harvey Silverglate, um, a Harvard law professor, estimates that the average white collar professional literally commits three felonies a day and does not realize it. He lays out a very, very good case on where that can happen. And in my coaching and in my speaking, I lay out that same, that same case. People all the time will commit crimes they do not realize they're committing. There are 5,000 criminal laws that get you put in prison, another 10,000 to 300,000 federal regulations that if the feds decided to prosecute you on, they can actually send you to prison for those violations. And they range everything from labor to, um, to banking to environmental. And you just take a look in the paper today. I mean, it seems like to me they want to throw everybody in prison. You know, it's just it's just inc- it's just incredible. Yeah. Well, they're, they're, I mean, they're, they're the white collar is considered a really bad dude these days, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, they're, I mean, they're all at kind of all levels, it seems, of the fight against crime, whether it's violent crime or drug crimes or even white collar crimes. I mean, there are some who point to and say, hey, there's this prison industrial complex that needs to be fed. And there, there are for profit prisons. And there's some I've heard make that case of, you know, we're throwing too many people in, in prison for what might not be totally virtuous reasons. Well, we are definitely throwing too many people in prison. And if you want to take a look at um, a lot of problems that the lower income communities have with the lack of, um, you know, fathers around, somebody who is the son or daughter of an incarcerated person has a 50% um, higher chance of going to prison themselves than not, which is really a startling um, statistic when you think about it. And I would say my wife would, would drive from Atlanta to Butner, North Carolina every other weekend to visit me in prison. So I spent a lot of time in the visitor's room at a federal, at federal prisons. And I saw all these kids and all these wives come in there to visit their husbands in prison. And um, trust me, when they left, they left without having um, a male um, you know, um, supporter there, you know, income support and having, um, you know, just the guidance of fatherhood there for those, those kids. And those kids need that. And there's no reason for it with GPS monitoring that we have now, you could easily attach a, um, an ankle monitor to almost anybody. And with big data, you could um, run big data where you can run um, crime statistics and trace people back to see whether they committed those crimes. And, um, you know, I, when I got out, I had to submit to drug and alcohol, um, you know, testing, you know, too. So there is enough um, to monitor people as opposed you don't have to throw everybody in prison. Not everybody going to prison. And trust me, if I never spent a day in prison, I would never have committed another another crime. I learned my lesson the first day that the FBI came knocking on my door. You know, I didn't need to have anybody tell me that I needed to wash my back. So, um, you know, I think that we incarcerate way too many people and everything that is talked about um, regarding drug crimes 
Um, the drug crimes, they, um, those sentences are way, way too long, way, way too long. And, um, and I had a really good friend of mine. He's still a friend of mine today that got caught up in a conspiracy case. His partner was dealing drugs. They owned a retail store together and he ended up getting nailed for conspiracy, decided not to go to, um, did not take the complete deal. His attorney promised him he can get off. He went to trial. He had people testifying against him who he did not know, who he had never met. And those people were promised lower sentences. They testified against this guy. So they obviously perjured themselves. This guy got sentenced to 30 years in prison, 30 years in prison, and he did not commit a crime. He ended up spending 19 and a half years in prison. And then he got out on an Obama clemency when they were um, passing out oh, clemency. But he spent 19 and a half years in prison. And he is not bitter about it at all. He's a great friend of mine to this day. And I really give him, um, you know, a lot of um, credit. And like me, he recognizes that, um, you know, that was a journey that he had to take. And he took it. And, and he did not do it in bitterness at all. Well, I was, I was, I was going to say, Kevin, um, the one thing I'm, I'm not getting from sensing from you at all is anger or bitterness, but a desire, like you've come to peace with it. You're, you're looking to help others. So I, I appreciate that. that yeah. That I have no bitterness, bitterness whatsoever. And, um, I was, I think very, very fortunate. I met the right people at the right time in my life when I was in prison that helped me along on my journey. And I will be forever indebted to those people as well. But that's a longer story and probably um, um, a very long interview or a, um, a documentary, to be honest with you. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's um, a lot of it, it comes down to attitude. I mean, bad things happen to good people. And it's how you view those bad things that determine on how you're going to move forward with your life. And I certainly met a lot of people who were very, very bitter when I was in printer. Very, very bitter. Mm-hmm. Um, so our, our guest today, um, Kevin Foster, again, his, his company is um, uh, Business Ethics Advisors. You can find their, his website, businessethicsadvisors.com. I mean, when, when you're brought into a company to, to, to give a talk, I mean, we've all, you know, heard about, you know, there's a program for kids, like the scared straight program. Are, are you, are you being brought in to provide ever so, sort of a white collar version of that? Or it's, it's, it seems like there's more gray area here about don't get yourself into a situation that can shift from unethical to against the law. Okay. Well, my big complaint about ethics programs and large corporations is they're all rules based. And essentially, every employee is told to sit in front of a computer for an hour a year and take an ethics course that's video-based. And that's it. That's gone. And then they're done. But see, I I teach values-based ethics as opposed to rules-based ethics. And so when I'm hired, hopefully they are hiring me because they realize the benefit of having a combination of rules-based ethics, which essentially satisfies whatever ethics requirements that the board or their um, auditors are requiring um, or whoever the uh, the regulatory agencies are requiring. 
But really, that I've never seen rules-based ethics keep somebody out of prison. If that was true, no, we wouldn't need to have these 5,000 criminal laws and um, 300,000 regulations um, out there. They don't keep people in prison. It's the moral compass that somebody has in being able to steer their own moral compass um, down that path and be able to recognize those flashing warning signs that are out there. I mean, I told you the big red flag that was waved in front of me, and I guarantee you that every um, executive has a wave, a red flag waved to them at some point in time in their career. And it's amazing how many people come up to me at the end of a talk and said, Kevin, um, I know so-and-so who should be in prison. I got to tell you that I had a lot of instances just like yours, and I'm actually shocked that I never went to prison wow. based on your wow. story. So what's an example of um, of values-based ethics look at a situation? Can you give us one scenario, one example? Okay. So um, we had talked about ethics being, um, you know, being an acronym. So I'm just going to run it through real quick, and then you can pick it, um, pick it up. I know we're running out of time. But um, E is ego. So we've seen all the exaggerated egos that are out there. Um, T is temptation. Um, H is hijacked, typically by outside influence, and this could be greed. Um, it could be drug or alcohol abuse. It could be personal issues. Um, I is um, integrity, and this is essentially integrity of management of um, or the bosses or the people that we work around. C is consequences not considered, not thinking that you know, hey, look, if I continue to go on this path, I could be going to prison myself. And S is stinking thinking, which is like, everybody does this, everybody in my industry does this. Um, If I just do this one thing, I won't be caught. So these are all examples of ethics thinking, of um, um, values-based, you know, ethics and I mean, I expand on each of those and give examples on um, to my audience on how any one of those can get you into a lot of trouble. Yeah. So, so it, it sounds like st- uh, one example of stinking thinking and it's, stinking thinking is just rationalizing things, making excuses. Like everybody does it. I have to do this to compete. Things like that. That's right. This is what I expected of me. If I'm going to do it, I'm going to be that man out. Everybody's going to hate me if I don't do it, you know. And this is really why uh, management is so important, too. You know, when I take a look at most of the examples um, out there that have hit the papers, it's really senior executives that have made um, that have made the problems, initial problems. We saw that in Enron. We saw it in Theronis. We saw it at Adelphia. We see it at what Wells Fargo. I was just going to add. Yeah. Um, yep. I mean, it's over and over again. Somebody, somebody along the line could have said, stop it. And that's generally a senior um, executive. It takes a junior, in the case of like Threnos, it took a junior level example to bring it um, to um, the regulators, um, you know, um, um, fourth, you know. Right. Yeah, I mean, the Wells Fargo case is one that I followed really closely and I've blogged about a couple of times. And right about the same time, there were parallels to a, a, an ethics scandal, as it was described in the VA health 
um, administration at clinics and hospitals around the country, and whether it was you know signing customers up for bank accounts they didn't ask for, or you know lying about patient wait times in the VA, like the the, the common thread to me was that there was executive policy and pressure and fear. And then in these situations, like whether it was Wells Fargo or the VA, you know, it's like, oh, well, we have thousands of unethical people all throughout the company. And I'm like, well, come on, like that, that was driven, I would say, by corporate policy. And if you had that many unethical employees, what the hell's wrong with your hiring process would be another question to ask. So I, 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 I always cringe when it seems like low level people are fired or thrown under the bus for things that seem like the predictable result of executive corporate policy. Well, that's really true. And also it's culture. A lot of it gets down to culture. Um, you take a look at um, what goes on in Washington, Washington, D.C. You see a lot of people who are convicted out of Washington, D.C. at different levels, whether it's a political appointee or whether it's a career type person. But there's a lot of, um, lot of pressure um, for them to keep their jobs or to be able to have an outcome that is predictable by a current administration. So if you're under that kind of um, kind of pressure for a good paying job, then you're going to let certain things slide and you're going to be able to rationalize it. And I heard that from my politician friends that I met in, met in prison, you know, about how common that was. Wow. Well, um, hey, Kevin, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you've used your experiences in a way here that that can help others, you know, providing services, as you were saying, to, to help keep people out of prison. Hopefully they don't ever need your, your services, um, you know, described on the web, website of the incarceration consulting of you'd rather keep people out of prison than prepare them right. to help survive it. Right. Right. Exactly. That's right. Pre-incarceration consultant. So uh, that's right. So yeah. Well, um, people, I, I, I hope in a proactive way, if, if you and your organization want to do more than just check the box and say, well, yeah, we did ethics training. We know how people sit in front of the computer and multitask and don't really pay attention. And they're checking the box. Like, if you want to go deeper, you can hire somebody like Kevin um, to come in. And, um, you know, uh, it, it sounds like Sparks, uh, a d- deeper thinking and a broader conversation within a company. It sounds like that's your goal, Kevin. That's right. Thank you very much for saying that. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a lot of fun, Mark. Thank you very much for having me on. Well, well, thank you, Kevin, for for telling your story and um, for for sharing um, your favorite mistake and the aftermath and what you learned uh, with us today. So again, our guest has been Kevin Foster. Um, I'll put links in the show notes, but you can find his website again at businessethicsadvisors.com. After I say that a few times, it starts rolling off the top. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so forgive me for my initial stumble, my, my mistake. But thanks. Thanks again, Kevin. Oh, you're very welcome, Mark. Thank you very much. Take care of yourself. Well, thanks again to Kevin Foster for being uh, such a, a forthcoming guest, an interesting guest here today. Uh, for more information about Kevin and his work, you can go to markgraven.com slash mistake one, two, five. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work, and they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. 
If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.